This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Sean Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And this is our after lunch episode where we're punchy and the blood is rushing to our stomachs. Wow, we're really going on. This is backstage at the <laughs> TDBS Presents Christopher and Eric. We don't usually talk about when we're recording stuff. Uh, we do sometimes. We do. I always do that. You know, I nerd out about our process, and I tell people we record, we record multiple episodes in one day because we're very busy men. We're busy. You're busy getting cut open and having your appendix torn out. Right. That just doesn't get that just doesn't happen by itself. Yeah. Got to set aside time. I'm busy managing the fallout from the loss of my OnlyFans Hairs account. to be done. Naps to be taken. You stepped TV on my to be watched. Eric Shockwin. You're not picking up my joke. I have to manage the loss of my OnlyFans account. You know, there's a lot I need to be doing. I think you've got a couple of months, right? One month. That's one month. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I had nightshade for lunch. <laughs> Wow. Glad I went with the pork lo mein. <laughs> I did. I was like. That seems really alarming. Hold the LSD, please. Call that a lip seizure Over in the radio. The meadow and down into the glen. You right. can't go hunting for all the little men. <laughs> That's what you get for ordering lunch from the Crypt Keeper. Okay. How many lunch jokes can we make in one run? Uh, no. I'm not laughing, so. <laughs> I will see. The OnlyFans people have a month, and the new policy. So they announced the new policy: no sexually explicit content, and then they <laughs> defined like, it. I'm sorry. So what? What's gonna? What do they think is gonna be on fan, fans only? Nudity. You can still do nudity apparently, but you cannot do simulated or actual sexual intercourse. I uh, I stand by my original <laughs> statement. <laughs> What is it? Like, look at Tumblr. What did Tumblr turn into? Right. Or Yahoo after they closed Yahoo Groups. Like, right. I just... Tell us about Yahoo Groups. You, this is more of a... It's actually relevant to today's episode of True Crime TV Club. Yahoo Groups play a pivotal role. Well, but anyway, we'll get to that. It's, you know, it was the Tumblr of its own era. It was a place for people to come and post and share... Porn. Porn and sexually... Based material, and if you take that away, like I, the story I actually prefer to tell is about the Advocate. Oh, okay, tell that story. It was then. the flagship magazine of, for, by, about gay people in the country, and in the back there were the pink pages that mm. were classified ads for uh, escorts and massage and who knows what all, but that sort of you know. Mm-hmm. Um, winky winky sort of material and uh, nudge nudge say no more and 
they took them out. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And did you see a copy of Advocate at the Mm. newsstand recently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like well before magazines fell apart, they -hmm. took that out and the magazine just kind of folded up. Like it was the revenue source. I I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. I do we really need prudery at the advocate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that some of that is, the, is why do they need prudery at fans only? Like, it's what the, what's the point of the purpose? What's of your this? plan for? I mean, what is their plan? Uh, the other thing that I know is that the same company used to publish Advocate Men, which was sort of like a trade journal, if you will, about the porn industry. And that would also foot a significant amount of the bill for the advocate and the more sort of news focused publications. Oh, there was Liberations Publications and published a whole host of things. Unzipped yeah. was where the, the classified ads went right. from the advocate. Right. There was unzipped, there was men, there was a couple of porn publications. Yeah. And when they separated them, there was trouble. But I remember talking to someone who shall remain nameless who said in a meeting once he worked on that side of the business and Uh he referenced that fact. He thought, well, maybe, you know, since we're bringing in so much revenue, we could get this from you and this from you. And, oh, boy, the people who worked for Advocate did not want even that throwaway comment. They were not porn, you know. But, yeah, that's, that's the attitude, you know. And it's like, well, fine, bye. Yeah. And I, that's kind of how I felt. I saw that announcement about fans only, which I'm not a subscriber to and don't care about. I, I just think if you want to watch actual porn, I'd just assume there would be, you know, at least razors involved, if not lighting and makeup the, people. The vast um, majority of videos on OnlyFans look like two breasts of grocery store chicken being rubbed together in olive oil under a heating lamp. They were just the least titillating. I mean, it's like, and I have great respect for sex work, and I think porn is a legitimate industry, and I think porn is very difficult to make, which is what OnlyFans proved to all of us. But it's actually a thing. It's right. not just setting up your iPhone in your bedroom and filming right. yourself having sex because the thing that's really worth noting about porn is that that's porn is not about filming no. people having sex. Absolutely. It's about making something that looks like porn. Filming people having sex is kind of gross and messy and unattractive and very personal and mm-hmm. interior. I think we as I think people in this country, because we are so overexposed to that kind of sexuality on HBO as well as other porn outlets, mm-hmm. <laughs> more pronounced and more specific porn outlets, we've come to expect that that's how we're supposed to look while we're having sex. And that's not how having sex looks. Yeah, it is not. It is not. Um, I will also say that um, since we are talking about porn, this is maybe a good time to slip in. Well, it's maybe not the best term. A, a little reminder <laughs> that we have not forgotten about the case of Billy Newton. We did have some inquiries on the page recently about that. Um, our email line remains open, williamnewtoninvestigation.com. If you don't know, at gmail.com, excuse me. If you don't know what we're talking about, we did several episodes in the recent past, episodes 37, 48, 60, 63, and 74. All of those focus on the 30-year unsolved murder of a gay porn performer who performed under the name Billy London, but his actual name was William Newton. Uh, his remains were found in a dumpster in Hollywood uh, 30 years ago, around Halloween time. I was going to say, it's coming yeah. up this next month. 31 years with this next month, yes. Uh, where we left off with the story, which is in episode 74, is we interviewed a documentarian named Rachel Mason, who you may know as the director and kind of the center, if not the star, of a Netflix documentary called 
uh, Circus of Books, which is about her family's yeah. bookstore that was also kind of the center of the gay porn world. Yeah, and uh, they also, these episodes brought us in touch with Detective John Lamberti from the LAPD Homicide Unit who has inherited this case. Uh, we we owe them a meal. We're all going to get together. I, I just want to let people know we are still thinking about the case. We are still talking about the case. Uh, th- things are moving forward, but nothing that we can report on in this specific moment. But we're hoping that there is progress. And if you're out there and you're listening to it and you are in West Hollywood or even Hollywood around Halloween time, 1990, and you have old photographs, old recollections, we would love to hear from you at the William Newton. Particularly in and around Santa Monica Boulevard that particular night, the night before Halloween, right? Right. Rage is officially, it's been closed for a while, but it is officially about to lose its facade. It is going to become another nightclub venue, I believe owned by Lance Bass. So the Rage sign is going away, but Rage was the last place that Billy was seen alive. Uh, before his remains were found in a dumpster in Hollywood the following morning. So I thought. So Lance is now going to have two of the four corners? I think that's where we're headed, but I'm not entirely sure about the Lance Bass thing. So well, good for him. I, you know, <laughs> thanks. I was going to say, don't quote me on it, but if that's the case, I shouldn't say it on our podcast. Yeah, but... it's kind of already quoted, but right. like, that's the rumor. So mm-hmm. great. Uh, thanks, Lance. I, you know, want to keep the neighborhood going. Yeah, absolutely. Don't want to lose our identity as the gayest place on earth. Absolutely. Today's uh, installment of Christopher is done with that conversation. Well, I don't want to give short shift because we actually we were talking in our last episode about how much we loved the documentary that we're about to talk about today. So I don't want to like just talk. I didn't mean to start us off on OnlyFans. My apologies to everyone for the diversion. (laughs) This is not a porn themed or even sex work themed documentary. No, not at all. And you had a special disclaimer of your own that you gave in our last episode. Do you want to give it again? Yeah, I'll say it now if it, you know if you want to pause and go have a look. I think you should watch it before you listen to the Okay. the podcast. It's not required and we will definitely do our full due diligence and tell you the whole story and so spoiler alert, we're going to tell you the whole thing if you want to be surprised. You have to watch it before you listen. That's always the case with us. But this was a case where I just felt like Seeing it would enhance your experience of this because there are aspects of this story. We can tell you this story, but there are aspects of it that really aren't the same to be told as to be observed. Years ago, there was a movie called Catfish. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, well, I think I could tell you the story of Catfish. I don't think it would be the same as watching it. Okay. And typically, if this is your first time listening to us, we say the opposite. The goal of True Crime TV Club is that we serve up a special for you in such detail that you don't need to have watched it beforehand. But this is not our usual fare. This is a different—we're talking about a documentary called The Woman Who Wasn't There. We picked it in part because we are coming up at at the moment of this recording on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And this document— touches on that documentary I should say like it's not really about the mechanisms of terrorism that led to the attacks it's not disaster porn per no, se which can be problematic it's not really about that it's yeah. about surviving 9-11 yeah so um, if, if if you're taking Eric's advice now is the time to pause us and go watch it because we're going to start talking about it it's about an hour right it was an hour and 15 yeah it's just over an yeah. hour yeah um 
So let's dive in. I am intrigued by the fact- And it was available on- AMC Plus, if you are a subscriber to that, it's available through your subscription, and also Sundance, I believe, maybe a standalone subscription service still. But it's all, but Sundance is a part of AMC Plus, right. so definitely there. And you can rent it through any number of options, but if you're a subscriber to AMC Plus, Sundance, or Prime, then it's included in your account. Yeah. So let's dive right in. Um Right at the front, we are introduced to a woman named Tanya Head. Uh, she speaks perfect English, but she has somewhat of an accent. It will take us some time to be told that it is a Spanish accent. She was born in Spain. Um, she is describing for us a very dramatic and romantic love story with her husband. Uh, it is illustrated by a dramatic title sequence of almost animated paintings. I don't even know how to describe yeah. it. They're incredibly... Animatics. They're, it's yeah. really, it's kind of lovely. That it's almost like um, pastels or, or you know, crepas or something. Yeah. It has that kind of quality. And it's little scenes and there seems to be little, like, two versions so that it gets a slight movement to it. Mm -hmm. But it isn't animated by any stretch of the imagination. It's more like... Um, the covers of romance novels. Yes, absolutely. Kind of blurry, expressionistic mm -hmm. paintings of this this romantic memory that she's uh, calling forth for us. And I believe the opening title sequence reveals to us that this romantic story ends tragically, that her husband is killed in one tower of the World Trade Center, and she is in another and barely survives um, a fiery rescue. She, I think it almost begins with her saying the thing about the coffee. He asked if yeah. I wanted to meet him for coffee, and I said, no, I had a meeting that mm -hmm. I would see him later, and that was the last time they ever spoke. So we cut to September 11th, 2006. This is the fifth anniversary of 9-11. As we're recording this, as I said earlier, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary, so that should tell you uh, how far in the past this was. Tanya and a group of 9-11 survivors are meeting and planning to go to the site for the first moment of silence. Apparently on the anniversary there are several moments of silence and they want to be there for the first one. Tanya is during, our Tanya I should say, during all of this is addressing the camera directly. We're seeing her through footage that she consented to have filmed of her. Right. Okay. There's a thing where she shows us that She's bringing a little toy taxi cab because she says they met, she and Dave, her, her husband, yeah. fiancé, um, met when he stole her cab. Mm -hmm. Which is a meet kind cute of a, out of a, a romantic sweet, comedy. Kind right. of story, yeah. Uh, we are in the process of this. We are introduced to other 9-11 survivors as well. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And pitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> Around the subject of this documentary, which is a woman named Tanya Head, we are introduced to other 9-11 survivors, including a woman named Elia, 
and she talks about experiencing survivor's guilt. We're introduced to a man named Jerry, who is the co-founder of the World Trade Center Survivors Network. He also describes feelings of guilt, uh, not only about surviving, but of about assumptions about why he wasn't able to get people around him out. Apparently, these are being presented for us as very common experiences um, by all survivors of a tra- tragedy or a disaster like this. But a particular, the particular um, subject of people who have survived this particular tragedy. These are the things that many of these people right. have in common. And having these things in common brought them together. Yes. They needed each other for support afterwards because who could you talk to about having been in the towers except other people who were and had survived? And so one of these survivors is named Brendan. He's a, a, um, a white man. Uh, very, He's perhaps the most talkative of everyone that they interview. Uh, he says, point blank, you don't feel lucky to survive. Um, you need therapy. Therapy doesn't help. So eventually what he did is he went looking for other survivors, and he found them in the form of an online Yahoo group. We talked about Yahoo groups earlier right. in the podcast, where he could connect with other survivors and get almost instant support and feedback. Um, all of these survivors that we've just met in these interviews uh, start to talk about what a help Tanya Head was to them and how she projected a facade of strength, but underneath there seemed to be terrible pain over her loss. And they heard, in hearing her story, it gave them hope because her story was so tragic. They felt like, well, if she can press forward and be doing the things that she is doing, then maybe I can too. Exactly. And they say initially she didn't talk about her 9-11 story. I think she just alluded to how horrible it was, and then and over time she lost Dave. I think that yeah, was part of her that she had lost. They knew her she was a widow. The crash. But then she got into the nitty gritty of it. She said the story was as we as we saw glimpses of in the title sequence. She was in one tower. Her husband was working in the other. She looked out the window after he was in the north tower. So the first plane, American Airlines Flight 11, hits that tower. Tanya looks out the window. She counts floors. She realizes the plane had struck his floor. Someone on her floor screams that another plane is coming. This is United Airlines 175. The impact happens. She passes out. She comes to, and there is a man with a red bandana, and she claims he is using it to put out the flames around him, and that he hugs her and tells her to stay awake because help is coming. The story jumps ahead. We later get more details of the story that are filled in, but um, she says she ends up in the hospital, She's there until Thanksgiving. She has terrible burns on her arms, and she can't. Wa- she couldn't walk for an extended period. She was in a wheelchair. Um, a lot of the people in this little survivors group hear this story and think, "Oh my God, I don't belong in this group. My story's not anywhere near as bad as Tanya's." Right. Um, but she assured them they absolutely did. You know that they belonged here and they shouldn't feel that way. Go ahead. What were you going to we say? We even get the sense that the group exists partly because of Tanya. Mm-hmm. Like she had a lunch or drink with Jerry. They had yeah. they had spoken to each other and they kind of more formalized the group. She and Jerry kind of became the the foundation for reaching out to and having a place for people to come back to. And they said it was enormously helpful. People would post on at this time, it was Yahoo Groups. I'm sure it's a Facebook page by now. But, you know, I'm dealing with this. And people would respond within, you know, re- almost real time mm-hmm. 
with messages of support and hope and suggestions and um, their own experience and how they were dealing with the aspects of the the trial. And and they all said to a person that she had, in all of their cases, everybody they spoke to said Tanya had had instrumental mm-hmm. advice for them in coping with um, their trauma. And she, it sounded like she was bringing together different survivors' groups into a network. She contacts this gentleman, Jerry, and they meet, and he's already got a group going, and she unites it with her Yahoo group. And then they're interviewing other people like Alice Greenwalls, who was the head of the National September 11th Memorial and Museum, Marianne Fontana, the September 11th Families Association. Tanya became the catalyst, as you're saying, for all these different people to come together. And... Um, I guess I think the name of what they eventually built was the World Trade Center Survivors Network, and it established a board. It actually had a board of directors, but no officers initially. And kind of became the front-facing, I don't know, the the, the face of this particular group. There were sequences as they were looking at this trip to the— you know, on the the fifth anniversary that we began with, where mm-hmm. she is embracing the mayor and mm-hmm. other people like the governor, know, governor the Pataki, governor, yeah, Giuliani, all, yeah, they're all right there. Like they they were very much the the representatives of this substantial group of mm-hmm. people, um, yeah. and uh, very much a constituency, and uh, and the people most affected by this tragedy. Um, the thing that she really does that has a huge impact on all of them is that she arranges the first visit to the site. Now, this is early. There's no museum. There's Nothing's been rebuilt. It was a pit for a very long time, if people don't know. Yeah, it was right. a, you could, you could, I remember vividly in the beginning trying to get up to it. There was a viewing platform, but it was so small and threadbare and crowded that you couldn't really get to it. So access to the site was an important thing, and she is able to arrange a visit to the site itself. They're able to tour what is accessible of the ruins, essentially. And this is very cathartic and healing for a lot of the survivors. However, at the end of the tour, which is, and this is when we're seeing the footage of her with Giuliani and Governor Pataki, somebody says to her, the media really wants to talk to you. And she flips. She starts having a panic attack. She starts shaking. She starts crying. That The survivors around her say this is behavior like she's never exhibited before. And they protect her. They surround her and they escort her and they get her away from the cameras and the prying reporters. But but this incident, along with some more details about Tanya's marriage story, starts to make Brendan suspicious. Um, because we're hearing like, okay, so she's saying that a month before, or maybe it was even just a few weeks before, Dave, her husband, surprised her with a trip to Hawaii, and that while they were there, they had a non-legal wedding ceremony, which is why Tanya is not actually married, and why, if you research news articles about this gentleman named Dave, who was actually killed in the North Tower of the World Trade Center, there's no mention of a wife or a fiancé, but Tanya's explanation for that is that when they returned to New York, they planned on October 12th, excuse me, to have a legal wedding ceremony, but it had been postponed. For reasons she does not make clear, right? But as a result, it, it kind of explains her circumstance, and it's just sort of seems the story is so like we realize at this point that that the the story we were seeing at the beginning was a further description of this trip to Hawaii, this very right. 
elaborate, beautiful. He had surprised her. Mm -hmm. He had arranged for it with her. She worked there at Merrill Lynch in the other building. Mm -hmm. um, And that he had arranged for her to be off work and she didn't know. And he'd booked the hotel and the trip and the flights and whatever. And off they went to Hawaii. And there he surprised her and Mm -hmm. a circle of orchids on the beach and um, with you know, we got down on one knee and proposed. Mm-hmm. And they had this romantic, non-legal, but um, and the members of the family had been yes, present, and right? That it was quite the lovely um, advent, event and acknowledgement of their deep and abiding affection for one another. Then suddenly, we're in Spain. We're interviewing a Spanish-speaking journalist in Barcelona named Marta Forn. She's a reporter for La Vanguardia. She's telling us about Tanya's background. Tanya is from a good conservative and well-known family. I don't know why conservative is one of the... This is a subtitled dialogue, so that could mean something else. But conservative does not mean inherently good any more than liberal means inherently good. But um, uh, she moved in high social circles. We meet a childhood friend named Sonia who also addresses us in Spanish and is subtitled. She says that Tanya was always jovial and pleasant, but she was very spoiled and grew up with her own horse, which she knew how to ride. And she was absolutely in love with everything American, which is just sort of hung out there for us to make of what we will. Right, it was her complete obsession. She had an Arabian, but she loved Americans. This The w- horse was an Arabian. <laughs> exactly. a- Are there American horses? Do we make good horses in America? I don't I know. Get, would guess so, yeah. Quarter horses and those sorts of things are... Isn't Kentucky sort of the home of the Virginia and Kentucky and South Carolina? All the homes of all the... Oh, Lizzie, your accent. Your accent. All the horse trading and horse breeding. Um, This, the next thing was to me a weak spot in the documentary. Um, what, What wasn't made clear enough to me, quickly enough, was that the man in the red bandana that Tanya actually mentions as being instrumental to her rescue was sort of um, a legendary figure of 9-11. The man in the red bandana, it turned out, was named Wells Crowther. And he apparently helped rescue a lot of people before losing his but own life. But didn't survive himself, didn't survive. right. And so the, it, it had become sort of a, an icon of the, the human um, face of, of, of the tragedy of the people, the heroes who rescued so many and gave their lives to do it. And so... Um, Someone contacts Allison Crowther, that's Wells's mother, and she is putting together a kind of memorial service, a celebration of life and a celebration of his final achievements, if you will, for her son Wells. And she said, this person, whoever contacted um, Allison, says, we know a woman who he saved, and it's Tanya. Um, she's reluctant to meet with you because other family members have been angry with her because she survived and their loved ones didn't. This is not the last time we're going to hear this story. Um, So Allison says, listen, I absolutely want to meet her. Let's get together for a private dinner at the Princeton Club, of which I'm a member. And they apparently have this wonderful experience together. They talk for hours. It's nobody's, nobody, it's a private club, so nobody's bothering them. Um, And uh, they eventually invite her to the dedication of a sculpture that they are raising in honor of Wells. And um, she, Tanya is so nervous that she can't read her remarks. And so at this time, the woman who has become her closest friend in the group, Linda, 
decides to read those remarks for her. And this is sort of the beginning of a kind of really close friendship between Linda and Tanya. They're sort of inseparable. They give tours of the site together. Tanya translates in Spanish. Um, and Linda gets up at this dedication ceremony and reads the speech that Tanya has scripted about her miraculous rescue at the hands of this fallen hero. At the end of which she pulls out a red bandana in tribute mm-hmm. to... Uh, what was his name? Wells Crowther. Wells. Yeah. I just want to say Wellesley, but Wells Crowther. Yeah, and one of the things that is really, I think, powerful um, at this point in the documentary is that all throughout this, we are seeing extensive footage of Tanya mm-hmm. being interviewed, talking about herself, her experience, being a survivor, uh, building the group. All of the things that she's done, but she is very much a part of um, the documentary. She is mm-hmm. well documented and lots of lots of interview, lots of footage and lots of looking straight into the camera and talking clearly put together, I guess, for um, other purposes, but repurposed here for this documentary. She's not being interviewed for the documentary so much as they have interview footage of her talking about her experience. And so around this time, Tanya starts to, emotionally, she starts to change. All the survivors of the group say she started out as kind of our rock, and then she starts to get more fragile, more depressed, more caught up in the more horrifying aspects of her story, her 9-11 survival story. And she begins to go to therapy, and she undergoes a very intensive form of therapy, which I had never heard of before, or maybe I did, and I think the name has kind of changed. It's called flooding, but what it sounds like is immersion therapy. Right. And so this requires her to tape record a detailed account of her experiences on that day and play it over and over and over again. And she asks Linda to be present for most of this. So she's asking her best friend, another survivor of that day, to be with her as Tanya essentially paces the room playing a tape recorder on which she describes the following horrifying details. Her assistant was decapitated right next to her. Everyone around her was burned. Her arm was supposedly dangling by a single piece of skin, and she had to tuck it into her coat to keep it from falling off her body. It's horrible. And Linda, who was interviewed, says, eventually, we were doing so much of it together, I was starting to have nightmares about her story. And when... I said I, I had to step back from this process. She attacked me. She said I was a terrible friend. You know, she was furious. Yeah, just really a, a surprising response for somebody who has been through this experience and knows what she's asking of Linda. Yeah, and then at this point in the, in the um, timeline of everything, the other survivors are becoming worried about Linda. They're worried about her immersion with Tanya and how close they've become. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. 
suddenly we're back to Spain. Now we're in Mallorca now. Uh, Sonia, Tanya's childhood friend from earlier, is being interviewed once again, and she says that Tanya got a lot of attention as a child. She was the baby out of five siblings and the apple of her parents' eye, but she struggled with her weight, and she was very sensitive to mean things that were said about her. Uh, when she was a little girl, her parents sent her to school in the United States. She became an overachiever, and this again was the subtitles, savagely competitive was how it was described, mm-hmm. with her coworkers specifically. And that they said, that the comment on this is she surrounded herself only with people who couldn't compete, which is an interesting note. Right, people yeah. she could manipulate. People she could manipulate. Now... In the center of this sort of recently formed network of survivor groups, Tanya is starting to become a bit of a Machiavelli. She's pitting people against each other. Uh, she goes after the gentleman, Jerry, who is basically kind of the acknowledged leader of the group. She originally went to him to join her Yahoo group with his pre-existing group of survivors. Um she prevents him from being elected to their board through a series of sort of almost corporate-like moves. And then she gets reelected to the board. And then she gives officer positions to the board for the first time. And she becomes president. So Which is not an office that had existed before. No. As Jerry had arranged the group, there was no leadership. Yeah. And I think this is when the editing of the documentary got a little bit awkward for me. They were getting... They were, getting a little ahead of themselves and then pulling back a little bit. Brendan basically tells the camera that at this point, he's starting to figure out Tanya's story doesn't make a lot of sense. But he's so afraid of causing friction in the group, he doesn't tell anyone and he and doesn't And he says he even feels some guilt in questioning her story. Yeah. Like, how could I? How dare I? This woman who has been so helpful to so many of us and... You know, been instrumental. She has put together all of these events and gotten funding and uh, the, made them all docents at the museum and access to the site and all of the other stuff that she's done. He feels a little bad about questioning and her veracity. Nobody is getting paid. Nobody's getting a salary. No. Nobody's getting any money. Tanya's not getting any money for any of this. Yeah. Um, also, a detail we skipped over Jerry earlier remarked that he had noticed that while Tanya had injuries on her arms, or one arm in specific, they looked very much to him like skin grafts and nothing that's quite on the order of the severing, essentially, that she described in her burns. story and the burns that she described in her story. A few days before the sixth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the New York Times starts to do a story about Tanya. And that is when the proverbial shit begins to hit the fan. The caca. She's telling all of her friends in the group that the reporter's questions are invasive. They're too personal. He's making up lies about her. Um, She's supposed to meet with the reporter several times. She keeps canceling her appointment. It's a gentleman named David Dunlap who writes for the New York Times. The New York Times gets in touch with Jerry, who at this point has few nice things to say about Tanya. Because he's basically been dumped by the organization that he helped found to support him. So bless his heart. I hope he found somebody else to lean on since the people who he counted on had kind of turned their backs on him. Um, He realizes when the reporter calls him, this isn't just a profile. This is an investigative piece. Right. She's being investigated. Around this time, Linda gets a call from Tanya who tells her that she's standing, and she's hysterical, and she's standing outside the St. Regis Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. 
that she attended a survivors group just for the family members of Merrill Lynch survivors. Which is where she worked. Which is where she worked. Eleven of her co-workers died around her, she claims. And their families are there at the gathering at the hotel, and they want to know how come her loved one, the, their loved ones died and Tanya survived and she didn't save him. Second time we've heard this story of someone apparently accusing her of not doing enough to save the people around her in the office at Merrill Lynch. She calls Linda. Linda rushes to the hotel. She finds Tanya both despondent and suicidal. Linda goes inside the hotel, and she starts asking the people who work there, can we just get a quiet place to sit? Um, you know, she's really upset. She was at the conference, and the people at the hotel say, I'm sorry, what conference? What are you talking about? <laughs> there was no conference at the hotel. Or none that Linda found evidence of. So Linda is so freaked out and so confused, they decide to go to a memorial that was dedicated for the, the victims of the office where Dave worked. And so they go over to wherever this is. They didn't really specify where it was. It didn't sound like it was at Ground Zero. It might have been close to the actual Who knows? offices. And Tanya just touches Dave's name on the memorial over and over and over again. Um, Tanya's uh, sort of campaign against the reporter continues and intensifies. She's trying to get all the other members of the group to defend her and stick up for her, but they're starting to lose their stomach for this. She's driving the other survivors nuts. Um, every night before 9-11, she would host a regular barbecue on the roof of her home. Um, this year, though, she's she has it, but she's a mess. It's all she can talk about is the interview. So Linda starts saying to her, just give them something. Just give them some piece of evidence that you are who you say you are. And she suggests part of your story, which I don't think we were told before this moment in the documentary, is that once you got out of the tower, a firefighter grabbed you and pushed you under a fire truck to shield you from the collapsing buildings. Give them the name of the firefighter. And she wouldn't do it. And I think at that point, I think the reason they told us that detail for the first time is that if earlier they had presented her story as her having experienced every aspect of that attack short of actually being on one of the planes, we as audience members would have gotten immediately suspicious because... And then a firefighter threw me under a fire truck. I was like, okay, I'm starting to doubt this A firefighter story. carried her out of the building yeah. and threw her under. That's the help that came for her. And the only contact with the only real part of the story that it, it was in the illustrations. It was yeah. in those animatic illustrations mm-hmm. was the, the firefighter carrying her. They didn't make reference to it. But at this point, we learned that that's part of her story as well. So Janice, one of the other survivors, says, I'm going to get you an attorney. So they go downtown or wherever the attorney's office is, somewhere in Manhattan. And this was the hell yeah. <laughs> they ride the elevator up together and they're talking strategy. And Janice is of the same mind. Just, just give them something, Tanya. We'll figure it out. So the attorney says to Jan- uh, Janice, excuse me, I think was actually how yes, they pronounced it. Yes, I think it. that's right. The attorney says, okay, I need you to step out, Janice, so that Tanya and I can have attorney-client privilege. So she does. And then she goes back in. And there's a conversation underway, like the lawyers trying to explain something to Tanya and Janice at the same time. But Janice realizes from the tone of the conversation what the lawyer is talking about is that most of Tanya's story isn't true. She's saying the lawyer says something in Janice's presence, which just knocks her flat. And and this was it. The initial thing is Tanya's upset because she's not a citizen. That's what she tells her in the elevator. Sorry. Then they get to the meeting. 
And the lawyer is conversing with Tanya about an alternate version of events. Saying, like, it doesn't matter that you didn't really know Dave at all. Oh, my God. That was the one. Yeah. It doesn't really matter that you didn't, like, that those, that you that it wasn't the, that you, you didn't work at You weren't in the towers. You were yes. not in the towers at all. Like, it was just, it's all, like, it really becomes clear that the story that she has told has been cobbled together from what she's been able to uh, find out about the thing, but is not actually a part of her experience at all. You know, and I at this point I wrote in our notes in all capital letters, how could they go six years without Merrill Lynch saying she didn't even work there? And the truth was, it's looking like she was active as this person for about a year. Yeah. She put these She didn't together. really appear yeah. until the fifth anniversary or just prior to the fifth anniversary. She didn't really exist for anybody then. In fact, she wasn't even really there. Yeah. Until then, she experienced this from a distance, wasn't she? Oh, we're going to get into that. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we can get into it now if you want. But the story basically starts to break. Linda, in this moment, is furious. She just feels completely betrayed. She feels total hatred for Tanya. She says she still feels it today. Uh, who was she really? Well, the answer to that is when the story runs in Spain about this woman, Tanya Head, who is... De- Defrauded is again is a difficult word to use here because she didn't get she didn't any money. Get anything? She yeah. got accolades and attention, but really that was all she got. She didn't. That was why we were so reluctant to call this true crime because the crime is like a personal crime. It's a crime against the other survivors, and it's a brutal, horrible thing to do. But she didn't take any money from them or mm. profit in any way. Um. And Tanya is not her real name. When the story runs in Spain, someone gets in the touch with the paper and says, that woman is actually Alicia Esteve. Uh, her father was a naval engineer who owned a factory in the maritime industry. He became embroiled in a complex scandal involving fake payments to a financial minister. The brother and her father both went to jail over this scandal. Tanya separated from her family. Um, as a young person in Spain... She t- and this is when they say the best cover story always has grains of the truth right. in it. As a young person in Spain, she took a road trip with her friends, and the car went off the road and rolled over. Her arm was torn off and reattached, hence the skin graft uh, evidence that Jerry noticed on her arm, hence the detail in her 9-11 story about losing her arm. And they said after the accident, she started living in two separate worlds. She just There, was, there were two different Tanyas. In 2001... There was a bank holiday um, in Spain. Uh, everyone, uh, no, I'm, I don't even know if they call them bank holidays. I think I'm getting that confused with another special that we're going to do. But 9-11 has actually always been a holiday in Spain. I don't know if they said why, if it was whatever. But immediately after, Tanya, Alicia, was in class. She was in college in Spain. And they have footage of her, which they show, of her accepting a degree certificate um, during the exact time she said she was in the hospital recovering from her injuries and confined to a wheelchair. Like, so she was not even on the North American continent at the time of 9-11. Yeah. And so what they assumed that she did was, as you said earlier, she went on the internet and figured out how to become a 9-11 survivor. She researched everything that she needed to. She started this Yahoo group to bring other people in. Um, they then, everybody starts comparing notes. They go back and and look at all of their suspicions and they realized, despite claiming, I think she claimed to continue to work for Merrill Lynch, 
she never had an actual office and that sometimes when she met with them, she was renting temporary office space and they never really asked why. And in the words of one person, she was the best liar I ever met. And after the time New York Times ran their article, she vanished. She sent Elia, one of the survivors, an email that said, hello. And Elia deleted it. She said, I didn't want her back in my life. I forgive her, but I don't want her back in my life after what she did. Um, She's never apologized. She's never explained herself. And then that ending. (laughs) Do you want to talk about that ending? That was so... It was so weird. Weird. It was like... It was like something... It was like Cloverfield or something. It was was just this bizarre sort of found footage kind of moment. Oh, my God. I thought they had started to play. They said... They they cut to a title card. She this hadn't been, been heard from or seen since then. And then three years later, on September fourteenth, two thousand eleven, you see someone with like a handheld camera crossing a street towards a woman who looks a hell of a lot like Tanya. The hair slightly different. The camera's jerking. It's actually kind of disturbing. And Tanya realizes the camera's coming for her, and she holds up her finger. You know, don't bring that camera near me. And it's clear that either the cameraman runs past her or she runs away and the camera spins and jerks and whatever. And that's the end of the documentary. So she's still in New York somewhere. I mean, just... Just going on about her business being Alicia. Like, it's just... It was... Do you see what I meant about watching the... Because you Well, tell me more, though. Yeah. It's because... It's because she was... You were seeing her. Yeah. Like... In the documentary, until a certain point in the documentary, she's a part of the documentary. Mm-hmm. So there's not, she's not being, you know, it's not like Dateline where mm-hmm. the murder's already happened and somebody's in jail and you're seeing a lot of old pictures and yeah. recreations, but you're not seeing the person who's being discussed. She's there addressing the camera, talking about herself, talking about her experience. Right. And you began to get the sense of, like, part of the reason for the the moments, the soft moments, if you will, in the middle, where they're making the transition to telling the story that Tanya is telling everybody else and then saying, this is where her story began to fall apart. Or it's there's not a clear line of demarcation. Mm-hmm. Like, the one guy starts on the internet doing research about the boyfriend mm-hmm. and he cannot find a single mention of her mm-hmm. or his engagement or being involved with anybody else or any member of the family or any photographs or there's nothing, but he's still there and he did die in the tower and he's already suspicious, but he doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And there's all of those little things that are right. the, the woman talking about the fact that Tanya, and this was such a bizarre choice. Tanya apparently would tell her that Lupe, her housekeeper mm-hmm. was walking her dog yeah, for a, a year. Dog. For a year. Every time the woman was at the apartment, Lu- oh, Lupe's walking the dog. Right. And finally she just said, do you have a dog? Got up in her face, New York style, like, Tanya, where is your dog? <laughs> she does the whole thing for the right. camera, right. Yeah, she's the yeah. one who said she could forgive her, but that she didn't want her back in her life, which yeah. I think is the healthiest kind of forgiveness with mm-hmm. somebody who's really done you dirty. But it was... I just think the impact of that was so much more powerful. Yeah. That movie Catfished was mm-hmm. the same thing. You, you, They build you up into – you fall for the same thing that the people in the, in the movie right. fell for. Right. So that by the time you, they realize that the woman – that he, he surprises her. 
Yeah. In the movie, he falls in love with this woman online, and he just goes to where she is because he has to meet her. Yeah. And so by the time that they get to that part of the movie, and she's actually there, and you, you realize that she's nothing that that we've all come to believe you've fallen for it too. Mm-hmm. Part of the the effect for me of this documentary was we got stung too. We're taken in right. by Tanya and her sincerity and her mm-hmm. looking directly into our eyes on the camera I didn't and telling believe us a word this story. Well, the movie was already called The, the I know. Woman Who Wasn't There. But, but but I really was looking at like would I have been taken in and I just she was doing a host of things. Her eye contact was was wonky. Um, the details were all too precious. It's that final detail of the firefighter threw me under it. The minute she had said that to me, on top of everything else, I would have been like, this story is bullshit. It just was too all-encompassing. And it it felt like someone who had read it all on the internet. It because just, it was a combination yeah. of a lot of different elements. Like, how she got from that floor where she apparently was to outside of the building before the building collapsed, to me, seemed to be the element mm-hmm. that was like, that's that's a that's quite a journey. Yeah, it is. Um, and that seems really um, dubious. But the thing that I think it was about was about people hearing what they wanted to hear. Yeah. Because it was about she was taking care of people who she could manipulate. Mm-hmm. She was involving herself in the lives of people who were looking for somebody with her story. Right. Who were looking for the courage that she was give, that she was apparently affecting. She wasn't doing it for... If she had gone to the papers with the story, if she mm-hmm. had gone to... But she didn't want to. She wanted to control this so that she could use it. This was something she was using to control these people. Mm-hmm. She wasn't looking for public acclaim. She knew yeah. that she wouldn't survive that, I think. Uh, There is, in my opinion, this is my little soapbox moment, there is a cautionary tale here for anyone who is interested in talking about true crime. I think there is a relevance here to true crime because I often see in our discussion of other cases or reading deeply and studying cases, there can be citizen detectives who go over the line, who begin to act with the emotionality and the drama and the theatrics of like the victim's family, um, who start to act in ways that are about self-promotion. Um, you know, God forbid, you know, when it comes to our discussions of the Billy Newton case, we are about being a vehicle for siphoning information that is credible to the actual law enforcement authorities involved. And the great As miracle of that investigation done. has been that we actually got the attention of law enforcement and they contacted us. We gave them everything yeah. we had. And they're proceeding from there. We're not trying to take the lead on the investigation. Our intent was to call attention to the news. Absolutely. And I think the reason I draw the distinction is that there is a, there is a history of people inserting themselves into investigations in dangerous self-promoting ways, and they are after something that does not necessarily have a monetary value, as we saw with Tanya. Tanya was after psychological control, bringing a social group around her that she could control, that would not criticize her, that would not question her. Right. You know, and... um, And even felt guilt for... Yeah. Thinking that they might question her. You're a terrible attacking Linda. Making an actual 9-11 survivor sit in a room with you, someone who had actually gotten out of the building. Now, I will say that was another weak point of the documentary for me. I wanted to know more about the other stories that supposedly in the minds of those victims didn't measure up. I wanted to know where they'd been or what had happened to them. I didn't need the gory details, but some context for their own experiences in relations to uh, relationship to Tanya would have been helpful because then we would have been able to see how baroque and crazy her story was right. by comparison to everybody else in the group. But I just think um, 
you know, there is a window licking is the sort of um, <laughs> unkind term for a lot of it that can happen when people go down an internet rabbit hole around a crime or something that didn't happen to them. They can start to lose their sense of reality. Oh, I and I think, I think any one of us who is interested in true crime should always work to maintain a kind of healthy separation between themselves and the facts of the case and the people who were actually directly impacted by the case. So that's my that's my soap box speech. And in this case, it was the the way in which she came from the outside. That Yahoo group was yeah. the perfect way she created this version of herself. And so she arrived fully formed with a reputation that she'd earned entirely online. It's the same as with last week when the couple met online between mm-hmm. Minneapolis and how much did she, if he was going to gay bathhouses, how know, much did she know? How much did she really know about the man who she married? I guess you could make that case for all of us, but it's it's the challenge of the veracity of, there is no certainty of fact-checking from, from the internet. And so she just arrived through this kind of... Why wouldn't they? They took her word for it. They took each other's word for it. Uh, but also, like, we don't know what sort of boundaries every member of the group was keeping between their own families in this group. I think if by keeping her activities with them focused on a single topic as opposed to dating someone where you might go to their apartment, they right. might go to yours, you right. might go off on a trip together, the boundaries are all over the place. Um but with this, they were always meeting about specific things, yeah. going specific places. She could really compartmentalize. You were compartmentalize. only seeing her through one peephole. Yeah. You couldn't see any other angle of her but the one that she was allowing you to see. And that's what created Tanya because Tanya didn't exist. No, she didn't exist. Fascinating documentary. She wasn't there and she wasn't anywhere else. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because it was a wild card. I picked it and I didn't know if it yeah, was going to work. It was a great choice for this particular because, yeah, I don't want to go – I think – Back through the ghoulish reliving of that horrible, horrible day. I mean, there there are personal aspects of it for, I think, all of us in the country. Nothing Mm. to compare to the people who were in the towers, but still. And so this was a nice way of talking about surviving this national tragedy together Uh, uh, in a way that sort of reflects us, but also reflects the best and the worst of people. Because the rest of the survivors were pretty stand-up Joes. They were pretty good Pretty good guys. I would I would like to meet all of yeah, those. Totally. I wouldn't mind meeting Tanya, but I might hit her in the head with a lamp base. <laughs> what a monster. I just making that woman relive her fake a, oh, story. Everything over and over she again. did. Everything she did. Yeah. Going to that boy's funeral. I everything that she did. What a monster. I what a monster. Unbelievable. Yeah. All <sighs> right. Golly. Next week, another monster. <laughs> We bring you another Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. We're making up for lost time because of Eric's whole surgery thing. Alleged surgery. And (laughs) this time we found an unconventional way to commemorate the much-delayed Met Gala, which is now supposedly happening. Is it it happening? It's supposed to happen on the 13th. So with that in mind, we'll see with the... the, um, the, 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 the pandemic of the unvaccinated. It may get canceled again, but uh, it's been canceled many times. And so we tried to find something that would, a true crime that would also suggest um, the Met Gala. And we'll reveal, terrible way. We'll reveal how we did that on our next episode. But if you want to watch ahead, do you feel this? Do you feel the same way about this special? No. No. We're back to the usual. We're back to the Cindy Conforti rule. Okay. Right. Watch it if you want to. Don't watch it if you don't want to. We're going to cover everything. 
you won't miss a thing, and you'll get our special sauce on everything and if the, you wait to hear it from us. It so is whatever. an episode of Detectives, colon, My Killer Case. This is a British show, so they punctuate their titles differently. <laughs> The, and have way more words in them than they need. Way more. And the uh, episode title is Joanna Dennehy, Serial Killer. With another colon. With another colon. It's just, we're a wash And there's a dash. Colon. Like, what, it's just all of... What is a group of colons called? Like a murderer of crows? Um, a fuck A colonoscopy. A colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> Episode one, season one of Detectives My Killer Case, entitled Joanna Dennehy, Serial Killer. Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.